Hello and welcome to Socialism, the Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. The Israeli onslaught on Gaza has sent shockwaves around the world. Hundreds of thousands are marching. But what should this movement be fighting for? What are the UN and governments around the world doing to try to get a ceasefire? What can Palestinians in Palestine and Israel do to develop their struggle? And what about the methods of Palestinian struggle? Do the rockets fired from Gaza help the Palestinian struggle? And what about the working class in Israel? How possible is it for Israeli workers to remove warmongering political leaders? How can Palestinians achieve national and democratic rights? What is the socialist solution to the poverty and repressions of Palestinians? This episode of Socialism looks at how Israeli state terror can be ended. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Socialism, the podcast. It's Thursday the 20th of May. Last Saturday, around 100,000 mostly young people marched through London against the Israeli state terror in Gaza. And today we are joined by Judy Bishan from the Socialist Party Executive Committee. Judy has written masses of material on Palestine and the Middle East in both the Socialist Party's magazine Socialism Today and The Socialist. And she's here to answer some of our questions on the current situation and what's going on in the Middle East. Hello, Judy. Hi, Sarah. So I'm just going to dive straight in. The Israeli onslaught on Gaza has sent shockwaves around the world. We saw that on the demo, didn't we? And it is once again a terrible war with massive civilian suffering, isn't it? Yes, it really is. It's a horrific bombardment of Gaza, which is now in its second week with a terrible loss of life and utter devastation as well on the ground in Gaza. The death toll is rising all the time, but the latest figure that I've seen is 227 Gazans who have been killed. And incredibly, amongst that is 60 children, in fact, over 60 children, I should say, and a very large number of people wounded as well. The estimates are around at least 1,500 people, some of whom will have some extremely serious wounds, of course. And, you know, we should, of course, add the deaths in Israel to the death toll. There's 12 deaths in Israel during this war so far, including one child in the case of the residents there. But in particular, this is a nightmare situation Mm -hmm. for the Gazan population. This is a trapped population with nowhere safe to go to get away from these missile attacks. Tens of thousands of people have been displaced. And really, the horror is encompassing the entire population because those that haven't been directly affected by death or maiming will be grieving for others, members of their wider families, or are just completely traumatised by the relentless bombardments that are happening. And during the night as well, it's obviously particularly terrible. And terrifying. Absolutely terrifying, yes. I mean, you'll have seen the TV footage of residential buildings that have been raised to the ground, tower blocks brought down by Mm. the missiles, including the tallest tower in the Gaza Strip. Another tower that contained international media offices has been brought down. Something like 40-odd schools have been attacked by these missiles, at least a dozen hospitals and clinics. And 
Of course, the infrastructure of water and power has also been affected, which adds to this humanitarian catastrophe. So really, this could only be described as state terror, a massive offensive of state terror, which working people across the world are absolutely outraged about. Absolutely. I think you describe it well there, Judy. So what's going to be done about it? That's the question, isn't it, that people are going to be asking on the demonstrations taking place again this weekend. So let's start with what are the UN and the governments around the world doing to try and get a ceasefire? Well, they show enormous hypocrisy, which just adds to the anger around the world of ordinary people, Mm -hmm. because really they are shedding crocodile tears. You know, they're not acting seriously to stop this war. They're issuing pleas, you know, meek pleas Mm -hmm. to the Israeli leaders. I noticed that yesterday the French government again called for a United Nations Security Council resolution. But that's been blocked right along by the United States administration. And in any case, the Israeli government over decades, ever since the start of the formation of Israel, have ignored many, many United Nations resolutions. They treat them as meaningless. And if you look at the situation with the US, the Biden administration hasn't wanted a UN call even for a ceasefire. It wants to maintain its close relationship with the Israeli regime. And it only condemned the Hamas rockets Mm. as an unacceptable escalation, not the Israeli onslaught, which, of course, is far, far greater in its impacts, incomparably greater, really, compared to the rockets coming from the Palestinian territories. So Biden has basically been allowing the Netanyahu government to do what it wants by saying that Israel's got a legitimate right to defend itself. And we've got to remember that... The US gives $3.9 billion a year to Israel, which is mainly for military expenditure and yet isn't using any of that money to put pressure on for a ceasefire in this war. And I mean, you know, when you look at what Biden's been saying in recent days, he's now said he will support a ceasefire, but without actually calling for one directly. And today he said that he expects a de-escalation as his, you know, meek message towards the Israeli authorities. But his position is causing increased divisions inside his party, the Democratic Party in the US. There's growing questioning in the US, particularly amongst young people, on what the Israeli regime is doing in this war and obviously in previous ones as well. And in any case, a ceasefire might come soon, regardless of the lack of effort on the part of international capitalist powers and the UN and so on to bring one about. Because actually, in the scene of the fighting, the Israeli government is satisfying its war aims of whipping up nationalism. And as far as the Palestinian militias who have been sending rockets into Israel, mainly Hamas and Islamic Jihad, they've also really been satisfying their desire to be seen as leading fighters against Israeli aggression. And they, in fact, asked for a ceasefire some days ago. So there could be a ceasefire soon. There's rumours of one in the next day or two. But in the meanwhile, every 
hour of shelling between now and then is going to mean more terrible loss of life. And continuing with the anti-war movement internationally is essential to really get the message across that there's got to be an immediate ceasefire. And beyond that, there's got to be an end to the siege of Gaza and, of course, an end to the whole repressive occupation of the Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank and also an end to discrimination of Palestinians inside Israel, we should add as well. Absolutely. So what would you say then that Palestinians in Palestine and Israel can do to develop their struggle? Well, in Gaza and the West Bank, we would say that the Palestinians need to build a third intifada, a new mass popular uprising, which needs to be democratically organised and under the control of the Palestinian working class people themselves, under their own control, under their own decision making. And it's precisely that kind of mass revolt that if it was sustained and built further, could grow to make this occupation untenable and therefore set the scene for genuine self-determination for the Palestinian people. They can't rely on their existing leaders who are pro-capitalist, and that includes Fatah, the leaders in the West Bank and Hamas, the leaders in Gaza. They've both shown their complete inability over decades to offer a way forward. And we say that ordinary Palestinians can only rely on their own struggle, on themselves, to plot the way forward out of the situation that they're in. And as well as mass struggle, they need to build political representation, their own political party, independent of capitalist interests, to demand national rights, their own state, but also to develop a programme that would mean decent living standards Mm. in that state which could only be achieved by adopting a socialist programme for a socialist Palestine, because you only have to look around the world at how decaying and rotten capitalism is to see that it's never going to be able to transform the lives of Palestinians in the Palestinian territories. And as well as that, a socialist programme is going to be the only way of attracting Israeli working class people towards a path of breaking from their capitalist class and moving to challenge and remove it, and moving towards a socialist Israel. So that's the way forward. And there have been some important Palestinian mass protests in recent weeks Mm. that, you know, are a start, a re-emergence of mass struggle. There were protests against the threatened evictions of some Palestinian families in Sheikh Jarrah, a suburb of East Jerusalem. And following those protests, a court hearing that was going to ratify those evictions was postponed. So there was a success from those protests. Then last month during Ramadan, there were large protests against barriers that the Israeli police put up around the Damascus Gate on the old city of Jerusalem. And those big protests against those barriers succeeded in getting those barriers removed. So again, you know, that was a significant success. Mm. And there was a third success, in fact, because on the what's called Jerusalem Day, where there is a kind of Israeli nationalist celebration, racist celebration of the seizure of East Jerusalem in 1967. And on that day, the nationalist march was planning to go through the old Arab part of the city of Jerusalem. And the protests managed to get that, first of all, rerouted and then called off entirely. Now, really, all of these protests were a build-up It was the repressive policing of those protests by the Israeli security forces that were part of the build-up to this present war. But I should also definitely mention 
that the biggest outrage of all for the Palestinians was when the Israeli military and police stormed the Al-Aqsa Mosque, Mm -hmm. the third holiest site in Islam, Mm -hmm. just at the end of the first week of May. And, I mean, it sent, you know, shockwaves across the Arab world, the Muslim world in particular, because the Israeli police fired rubber bullets, stun grenades and tear gas into crowds of Palestinians in that mosque and in the compound around the mosque, causing a lot of serious injuries. And it was particularly the reaction to that atrocity that led to a further outbreak of Palestinian protests across the occupied territories and in the Palestinian areas of Israel itself and also to Hamas and other Palestinian militias firing the rockets from Gaza into Israel. And that in turn led, well, was seized on by, of course, it didn't lead Netanyahu to do anything, but he was seized on as an opportunity by Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu to start this horrific war, pounding Gaza with deadly missiles. So, you know, another urgent task, we would say, as well as mass struggle that the Palestinians need is to set up, again, democratically run and organised defence committees to defend their communities and also to defend their protests. And these committees, by being set up and then linked together, could be an important step towards developing working class based organisations on a wider basis and a new working class party. Thanks, Judy. You've touched on it a couple of times there, but I wanted to ask you about the methods of Palestinian struggle. In particular, do those rockets that you've mentioned fired from Gaza, do they help the Palestinian struggle? Well, I think this is a crucial issue that the Palestinians are going to need to debate in their own organisations, in Mm. their own structures. In the Socialist Party and the CWI, we think that the rocket fire is counterproductive in their fight for liberation from the oppression that they're suffering under. When you look at what's happened in this war, they fired over 3,000 rockets. Most have landed on empty ground or have been intercepted by the Israeli air defence system, the Iron Dome system. And others that have got through have hit Israeli towns and cities, some very working class towns and cities, in fact, and have killed mainly civilians in an indiscriminate way. And if you look at the 12 who have died from this in Israel, that actually includes two Palestinians who are Mm -hmm. residents of Israel. And it also includes three immigrant workers as well. An Indian woman and two Thai factory workers were amongst those who were killed. And really, I think, you know, we would say that every civilian death on either side is tragic. But the crucial question here is... How is the Israeli regime going to be defeated? Mm -hmm. This is a regime with one of the strongest militaries in the world. So it's going to be necessary for the Israeli working class to build a movement that can be built to the extent that it can remove those at the top of Israeli society who have got this interest in the occupation and the ongoing repression of the Palestinian people. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the effect that these rockets have, they actually draw... Israeli workers in the opposite direction, Israeli Jewish workers, I should say, in the opposite direction, closer to the right-wing government ministers who are bringing this brutal repression down on the Palestinians because those ministers say, well, you know, this is what's necessary to secure safety for Israeli Jewish people. And 
you know, faced with no alternative being put in front of them by the political parties in Israel, then, you know, a substantial layer of Israeli Jewish people think that at the moment maybe there isn't an alternative. So the Palestinians' method of struggle needs to be thought through very carefully and in particular aimed at the occupation itself and at military targets and not at civilians who will be pushed in the wrong direction by indiscriminate rocket attacks. What's needed really, is a struggle that can help divide Israeli society along class lines, exactly. because it is a class society, yeah. like all other capitalist societies. And the aim should be to win as many Israeli workers as possible towards supporting a socialist solution for national rights on both sides of the divide and for decent living standards on both sides of the divide. But I will just add that we do support the Palestinians' right to armed self-defence, to an armed struggle, because, you know, they have to be able to resist the Israeli military attacks, mm. but that that resistance needs to be democratically controlled and democratically organised, along with, you know, mass mobilisations that can play an offensive role in pushing back the occupation. So Netanyahu, we've had him around for a long time, he's actually... His right-wing government has been in power for 12 years now. Is this war strengthening it or weakening it? And how is it possible for Israeli workers, as you just touched on there, to remove its warmongering political leaders? Well, Netanyahu does have a base of support in the Israeli population, but that's a minority, not a majority, in terms of when you look at the voting of the electorate. And it's also the case that he's been in a very weak position overall, and this is part of the build-up to this war situation, because a significant factor is that he's been on trial for corruption at the present time, and he's had a central focus, in fact, of using his position as the Prime Minister and trying to prolong that position as Prime Minister in order to try to keep himself out of prison. Yeah. And that's one of his major motivations. <laughs> And another significant factor is that he's been reduced to just having a caretaker role at the moment as a government because he's failed to achieve a majority governing coalition in each of four successive general elections. So there's been four general elections in two years and he's not managed to get a majority coalition in any of them. So it's useful for him at the moment, to be seen as a leader in Israel who's posing as acting against these rocket attacks, as being seen as a strong leader in a crisis of this nature. And I think there's no question that he deliberately paved the way for this war situation. In the most recent general election, the one in March, just gone, he crossed a new line by inviting the far right into the parliament, into the Knesset, into his bloc, and this, of course, gave the far right more status, more confidence. They were carrying out numerous provocations in East Jerusalem in the way that they were acting against the Palestinians. So in this way, Netanyahu has played a direct role in stirring up great instability, mm. in fact. And now that's being seen, that instability in a very ominous way for the Israeli ruling class in these communal clashes that have broken out mm in Israeli cities. Mm. It's causing great alarm in the Israeli establishment. In fact, the, the president 
Rivlin actually said that this was a danger to our existence, a danger to the existence of Israel because of the significance of having these sectarian clashes in the heart of Israel itself, not in Gaza, not in the West Bank in this case, but right on the doorstep, actually, you know, well, in the house, I should say, (laughs) not the doorstep, in the house of the Israeli ruling class. So what happened was that there was a big wave of anger across Palestinian communities in Israel, at the events in East Jerusalem, at then the war on Gaza, rage erupted in the Palestinian communities in Israel. And that was met by heavy police repression. And the far right kind of jumped on that bandwagon and started to go on rampages in the mixed areas in particular of Israel to try to stir up, basically, to try to whip up racism, to whip up violent clashes. So these have been described as elements of civil war in Israel, and really they are of greater concern to the Israeli ruling class than the results in the occupied territories because of the instability that they're bringing in. And of course, we must make the point that they're also a major danger to the working class and you know, yes, to of course, yeah. the middle class in Israel as well. Mm. And we've been saying in the CWI that it's very important for Jewish workers and trade unionists to organise along with Palestinian trade unionists and workers in those mixed cities against this sectarian threat, asserting the importance of unity rather than division. And we, of course, argue that the Israeli workers need their own workers' party as well. You know, I've I've raised that issue in relation to the Palestinians, Mm -hmm. but in Israel, a workers' party is needed for Israeli Jewish workers, along with the Palestinian workers that are residents of Israel as well, in order to build a big enough movement, big enough party to challenge their own ruling class in Israel. Because, as I said, it's a class society like any other, of course, with the big factor of the national question, though, as part of the whole scenario. But it's still a ruling class, a capitalist class, that cannot give decent living standards to ordinary Israeli people. The inequality is massive. A substantial layer of the Jewish population lives in poverty. Something like a third of Israeli Jewish children are being brought up in poverty. It's not as bad as the Palestinian poverty in Israel, but nevertheless, there are a very large number of Jewish families in Israel who are struggling to get by all the same. And then, of course, on top of that situation, the ruling class in Israel can't solve the national conflict and bring security to Israeli Jewish people. They've got no way forward regarding this occupation. If you look at what's happened over the decades since the formation of Israel, there's been no genuine moves, really, towards a Palestinian state by the Israeli ruling class. In recent years, they've hoped that expanding the Jewish settlements, reducing the Palestinian areas, dividing them up, atomizing them, they hoped that that would remove the prospect, it would take it off the agenda, this strong desire of the Palestinians for self-determination. But that's never going to go away. Mm. And the anger and frustration of the Palestinians is only increasing, if anything, at no progress towards their own state, at the brutal occupation, at the high levels of unemployment that they suffer, the poverty, the lack of services. When we're talking about the lack of services, we could also mention the lack of coronavirus vaccines and treatments at the moment and the terrible hazard that is. Mm. So... 
we'll probably see a turn to so-called peace talks again because it tends to go in cycles of violence, bloodshed and some kind of negotiations. But the negotiations will be a facade, really, because mm. it isn't in the interests of the Israeli ruling class for there to be a viable, independent Palestinian state next to Israel, which has got a historic claim on the land that Israel is on. And of course, in its position, in its intransigence, the Israeli elite has got the backing of capitalist elites around the world, which is, of course, why we say that the only way of realising a genuine Palestinian state and peace and security for both sides of the divide is not from deals at the top between capitalist powers, but from mass actions at grassroots level of the Palestinians and of splitting the classes apart in Israel. So... How can this Israeli government impasse be resolved then? Is there going to be a fifth general election taking place within three years? Or what's going to happen on that front? Well, it's obviously going to be affected by the war situation, which is what Netanyahu wanted. Yeah. I mean, at the moment, prior to the war, neither Netanyahu's alliance of parties, led by his party Likud, nor the bloc of parties in opposition to his bloc, have been able to put together a coalition that could have a majority and therefore govern. But it's possible that this war situation will lead one of the parties in the anti-Netanyahu bloc to switch over to Netanyahu's bloc to give him a majority. Or maybe there could possibly be a some kind of workable coalition put together at some point of the anti-Netanyahu bloc. But the likelihood of that has been reduced by this conflict because the conflict has brought out the different approaches of the parties in that block which they'd tried to paper over they'd tried not to really deal with it at all the national conflict when they had these negotiations about forming a government and there's Arab-based parties you know involved in those discussions as well so the different approaches are coming to the fore and making it now you know much much less on the cards that a government of the opposition to Netanyahu is going to be formed so If one of those two scenarios doesn't happen, then yes, a fifth general election (laughs) within three years is going to be the post-war scenario after a ceasefire. So, you know, the situation's still very, very unresolved. And there's other issues like Netanyahu's apparently been considering trying to change the election structure, perhaps so that the new prime minister will be directly elected by the electorate in order to try and get himself back in as the leader of whatever coalition (laughs) is then formed as the governing coalition. And through doing that, or just simply by the fact that he's been whipping up nationalism during this conflict, we can't rule out that he could return to power, in fact. The biggest factor in this, really, is that the opposition parties present no meaningful opposition on policy or programme, in fact, to Netanyahu's bloc. But I just should add that there's a large layer of the population that does want to see Netanyahu removed from power for a whole long list of reasons. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's the corruption (laughs) cases against him. I've mentioned the rising inequality in Israeli society, the poor services... There's discrimination within the different sectors of Israeli Jewish society, as well as, of course, against the Palestinians in Israel and then the repression in the territories. So it's possible that his boost from riding a nationalist wave at the moment might turn out to be short-lived because, you know, all of these factors and the fear that's been generated by the rocket attacks from Gaza, 
and also the fear that's been generated by these elements of civil war in Israeli cities, mm. they're all kind of raising worsening feelings of insecurity in the Israeli population at the moment. And it's worth, you know, there's so many things that we, you know, we could discuss. The war came just two weeks after the worst civilian, the most deadliest civilian disaster ever in the history of the Israeli state. Mm. That was, you probably saw in the news, a stampede at an event in Mount Meron, which caused 45 deaths. And that tragedy has been linked to negligence by the authorities on Mm. health and safety issues. So, you know, that didn't help feelings of well-being and security in the Israeli population. And another factor, you know, if I just raise one more, the feeling of being surrounded by hostile Arab regimes is resurfacing again because two of the Arab countries that signed a peace deal last year, sponsored by Trump, engineered by Trump, with the Israeli regime, and in particular Bahrain and the UAE, now had to respond to the outrage at these war events in their own populations by condemning the Israeli government. So, you know, that's, of course, you know, raising unease as well in the Israeli Jewish population. Okay, Judy, so you've raised the need in this podcast for a socialist programme putting forward two socialist states. But people will have come across as well the demand for a single state. Is that not realisable? Well, certainly there's a lot of discussion Mm. about the issue of one state or two states. For Palestinians, there's, you know, a considerable number who have lost all hope of having their own state. Mm. And so they sort of, you know, look at whether one state is the only solution now. But that doesn't mean that they see a one-state solution as more realisable, in fact, than a two-state solution. And as far as the Israeli ruling class goes, that they won't contemplate a single state with an Arab majority. This is why, you know, the Palestinians realise the difficulties in trying to realise that situation. Because, of course, Israel was formed in the first place on the premise that Jewish people needed their own state for their own security, their own safe haven in the world, after all the pogroms that had taken place against Jews and, of course, the Holocaust. And yet it was Marxists who had to warn, including Leon Trotsky, actually, before he died, that it would not be a safe haven for Jews to have a state in the Middle East. It would be the basis for an ongoing bloody conflict, which, of course, is what has been the the unfortunate, the terrible, the tragic Mm -hmm. case. And now, 70 years after the formation of the State of Israel, You've got a situation where most Israeli people have been born into that state. And, I mean, the working class in Israel and most of the middle class have got nowhere else to go in the world. It's a population with a nationalist consciousness, a working class with a nationalist consciousness. And so when you also take into account the decades of really cycles of bloodshed, you know, the the terrible conflict that's happened over and over again... It's the case as a result of all of that, that Israeli Jewish working people won't at the present time contemplate, the overwhelming majority of them won't contemplate the idea of being in one state with the Palestinians because there's not yet a socialist consciousness, a widespread socialist consciousness, and therefore they see that state as being a capitalist state. And of course, capitalist means inequality, it means poverty, It means basically a sharing out of the misery at the bottom of society. And so it's understandable that in that situation, Israeli Jewish people fear being discriminated against 
if they're in a state with an Arab majority. And it would have an Arab majority, in fact, because the figures are difficult to get to the bottom of. But whether or not there's a Palestinian majority now, there will be, because the Arab birth rate is more than the Jewish one. So Jewish people fear being discriminated against, and likewise so do Palestinians Mm -hmm. fear being discriminated against in a single state. Because, of course, even if they're in a majority, they can see the terrible discrimination against Palestinians now in Israel and the even worse situation for Palestinians in the territories. So they've got no confidence that they, on a capitalist basis, that they would not be treated in a similar way in a single state. So really, the idea of two socialist states is the most understood, accepted way forward when you enter into discussions with workers on either side of the divide. But we do stress that that could be, and would be, in fact, the prelude to one day being able to have no border. Because if you think to a time when you've got socialism, when you've got rid of capitalism, and you have ordinary people on both sides of the divide making the decisions, democratically deciding on all the what seem like intractable issues at the present time under capitalism, the issue of how the natural resources are going to be used Mm. between the sides, the issue, you know, water and so on, what would happen with Jerusalem, how Jerusalem would be shared what would happen with protecting the rights of minorities, what would happen with the right of return of Palestinians to Mm. their pre-1948 homes. All of these issues could be resolved as working-class people become the class in society that are making the decisions, that are negotiating with each other on the two sides. Because working-class people have got no interest in territorial influence or in capital accumulation for themselves, as the capitalist class does. So it will be possible for communities of Palestinians and Jews to live side by side or mingled together in peace on that basis. But perhaps just the last issue I should just take up mm-hmm. is the other question that was raised in connection with this is, will the Israeli working class move to challenge its ruling class? And We would say that, as I touched on earlier, there's great poverty in the Israeli Jewish population, a lot of financial insecurity. There's ongoing battles in many workplaces on the basic issues of pay, working conditions, welfare, you know, similar battles that go on in any capitalist country around the world. And Israel's no exception. There's regular strikes and disputes breaking out on these issues in Israel. And in fact, even just as the war was beginning, just 10 days ago, there was a 24-hour strike of doctors (laughs) in Israel who were furious that the funding was threatened for the extra doctors that had been hired during the coronavirus pandemic, and they wanted to keep those doctors in place. So they took a strike action and occupied a motorway, you know, were very bold about the way they went about pursuing their demands. And in addition, there's many demonstrations in Israel against, well, for instance, there were weekly demonstrations against Netanyahu on the corruption issue, There's been regular demonstrations on other important issues as well. So it is as much a class-based society as other capitalist societies, but with the national question, a massive additional factor. But on that score, at the end of the day, the Jewish population is not going to achieve 
security by military means. It's not going to achieve it by looking for a solution from any Israeli pro-capitalist politician. There's mm. quite a lot of varieties of them. Yeah. And it'll only be achieved by, you know, coming back to this essential point that we make, by Israeli Jewish workers together with the Palestinian residents of Israel who live and work alongside them, building their own party completely independent of capitalist interests and that will lay the basis for being able to transform society in Israel and for two socialist states in what will need to be a socialist region of the entire Middle East. Thank you very much Judy for outlining in those questions the Socialist Party and Committee for a Workers International position and approach to these complicated questions about the Middle East and giving us ideas about how to build this movement against the war, against the Israeli state terror and we will post in the podcast notes some of the links to articles that Judy has written as well. So thank you very much for joining us today, thank you for listening. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for Workers International. Today we heard from Judy Beeshan speaking to Sarah Sachs-Eldridge and I'm Mark Best. This episode was edited by Nick Hart. You can find further reading in the notes in your podcast app. If you want to get in touch, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Socialism the podcast relies on funding from our members and supporters. We have no big business backers or adverts. This allows us to maintain our political independence. Can you help fund this podcast? You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. But even more importantly, do you agree with the ideas of the Socialist Party as we've raised here? Get in touch and find out about becoming a member, joining the fight for a socialist transformation of society. Apply to join at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. And if you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism where you live, contact the Committee for Workers International by visiting socialistworld.net.